This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then they read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Joy Harjo, the current Poet Laureate of the United States. She's also a Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets, and her many honors include the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize and the Wallace Stevens Award. Joy, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's, great to, it's great to be here with you. So the poem you decided to read today is Still Life with Potatoes, Pearls, Raw Meat, Rhinestones, Lard, and Horse Hooves by Sandra Cisneros. Tell us, what drew you to this particular poem as you're looking through our archive? I guess it appeared recently, but it's a little bit older poem of Sandra's. And uh, I like the, the wildness of it. You know, it reminds me, especially in these times when we can't even go hang out, of, you know, being able to hang out and visit with people and be wild with people and dream and, and dream together and, and, uh, and uh, have fun. You know, even as it's also a poem, I think also a little bit about being at the edge of ruin <laughs> and discovery, which is usually the same place or can be the same place. Let's listen to the poem. Here's Joy Harjo reading Still Life with Potatoes, Pearls, Raw Meat, Rhinestones, Lard, and Horse Hooves by Sandra Cisneros. Still Life with Potatoes, Pearls, Raw Meat, Rhinestones, Lard, and Horse Hooves. In Spanish, it's naturaleza muerta and not life at all, but certainly not natural. What's natural? You and me, I'll buy you a drink. To a woman who doesn't act like a woman, to a man who doesn't act like a man, death is natural, at least in Spanish, I think. Life, I'm not so sure. Consider the Contessa who in her time was lovely and now sports a worth the size of this diamond. So, Regazzo, you're Venice. To you, to Venice, not the one of Casanova, the other one of cheap pensiones by the railroad station. I recommend a narrow bed stained with semen pee and sorrow facing the wall. Stain and decay are romantic. You're positively Pasolini, likely to dangle and fandangle yourself to death. If we let you, I won't let you. Not to be outdone, I'm Piazzolla. I'll tango for you in a lace G-string, stained with my first day flow, and one sloppy tit leaping like a Niagara from my dress. Did you say dress? Her dress. Let's sing a Puccini duet. I like La Traviesa. I'll be your trained monkey. I'll be sequin and bangle. I'll be May, Joan, Betty, Marlene for you. I'll be anything you ask, but ask me something glamorous. Only make me laugh. Another? What I want to say, querido, is hunger is not romantic to the hungry. What I want to say is fear is not so thrilling if you're the one afraid. 
What I want to say is poverty's not quaint when it's your house you can't escape from. Decay's not beautiful to the decayed. What's beauty? Lipstick on a penis, a kiss on a running sore, a reptile stiletto that could puncture a heart, a brick through the windshield that means I love you, a hurt that bangs on the door. Look, I hate to break this to you, but this isn't Venice or Buenos Aires. This is San Antonio. That mirror isn't a yard sale, it's a fire. And these are remnants of what could be carried out and saved. The pearls, I bought them at the winds. My mink, genuine acrylic. Thank God this isn't Berlin. Another drink? Bartender, another bottle, but ay, caray, and oh dear, the pretty blonde boy is no longer serving us. To the death camps, to the death camps. How rude, how vulgar. Drink up, honey, I've got money. Doesn't he know who we are? Que vivan, los de abado, de los abado. Los de rienda, suelta, the witches, the women, the dangerous, the queer. Que vivan, las peras. Que me sirvan, otro trago. I know a bar where the bias drinks. If I wear my skirt on my head and you come in wearing nothing but my black brassiere. That was Still Life with Potatoes, Pearls, Raw Meat, Rhinestones, Lard, and Horse Hooves by Sandra Cisneros, which was originally published in the May 23rd, 1994 issue of the magazine. This poem, which also appears in the 1994 collection Loose Woman, was also published in the July 27th, 2020 archival issue of The New Yorker, Voices of American Descent. You uh, put it so well, thinking about ruin, but also, I guess, reinvention in some way. And the poem... Uh, really skirts and plays with both those notions. I think you highlighted the ways that it's kind of a bold performance in some ways. It's saying things like, you know, I'll be your trained monkey, I'll be sequin and bangle. But then it also is able to say, what I want to say is fear is not so thrilling if you're the one afraid. Poverty's not quaint when it's your house you can't escape from. Uh, and that really mix of tones, I think, really struck me uh, looking back on it. It, it seemed very fresh and, as you said, very pertinent. How do you hear that poem now and do you remember it from back then? I remember that book and I remember Sandra back then <laughs> and that book coming out and the, the Liberty Bar in San Antonio. And uh, this poem reads as a back and forth. I mean, there's a, a couple of voices, probably several voices in this poem. And uh, times were different back then, but I mean, I think about what's going on now and I, I grew up at the edge of the civil rights movement, native rights movements, and then here we are back in this place where we have to, as you said, reinvent, you know, who we are. You think about natives, and I think of Sandra Cisneros as being native, being at the edge of awareness of America. And I read that all the way through here. It's like, okay, who are we going to be? There's a lot of play in this. Who, who are we in the imagination and who are we for real? in that house. Right, and in, in the house that, it's a mirror in some way, as she says, but she also says that mirror isn't a yard sale, it's a fire. And these are remnants of what could be carried out and saved. There is that quality of sort of fragmentation, um, but also I think of, of humor in a way that uh, sort of isn't in something like say the wasteland, which has all these voices and, and fragments against the ruin uh, shored up. But here I feel like there's something 
almost pleasurable in, in maybe it comes from the play, but also I think it comes from the kind of questioning the poem asks of us. It says, literally, did you say duress or dress? Um, and I love those kind of slippages in the poem, which speak to, I think, the moment, but also to language itself as a kind of fun house, as a mirror, but also a fire. Uh, there's something in it that really suggests, you know, sayings and folk songs, drink up, honey, I've got money, that really uh, lights the poem up in a beautiful way, I think. Yeah, I love that. I think one of my favorite lines is that, did you say duress or dress? And I think about what was happening politically then, you know, sort of the explosion of, you know, the social ruin and cocaine and uh, how that the machinery of that has led us to this moment here in history. In the middle of it all, though, is the humor, and that's what levitates, you know. It's a kind of a levitation device. Wherever it's used, it allows you to um, move over what is too painful to what is, you know, the utter pain that is located just beneath the lines. Yeah, I, I hear that. Um, there's opera, Puccini duets, there's uh, movie stars. Uh, I'll be anything you ask, but ask me something glamorous. Only make me laugh. Another. Uh, and there's that ritual, I think, too. Uh, and you, you hinted at it before, talking about sort of the bar talk that uh, filters through this poem. Why do you think the bar is so effective uh, as a, a place uh, in this poem? And then I know we're going to talk a little bit about your poem, which you mentioned has something to do with the bar as well. It's kind of a liminal place. And, and then there's the place of camp in here. You know, it's a very campy kind of poem, but itself could be called a liminal place, you know, where, you know, who is he and who is she and, and here, here is we and they. And uh, so bars are like that. They're not home. They're a place. People go to some people to get away from home or some people make it home, but it's not home, but it's a place where you go in and you uh, shift your mind. It's a place to go in and shift your perspective, so to speak. Do you think a poem functions that way? Is it to a kind of third place that we go to make home or find home or maybe get away from home? I think of poetry that way. I mean, I, what I love about poetry is that you can move through time and history and you can take it. It's something you can hold in your palm or in your heart or on a page and you can move through generations in a couple of lines and it's a place that can hold what is unspeakable or something that can live in no other place, but it can live in a poem. Well, and the title kind of conveys that, the still life with all these things. I, I kept thinking of something like Guernica, which isn't quite a still life, but a portrait of, you know, disaster. Uh, and here you have not quite only that, potatoes and pearls, raw meat and rhinestones, lard and horses. Um, and I, I wondered about that, how that title kind of is a counterpoint to the poem, or do you think it sort of sets the tone, or how, is it fantastical? How do you hear that title? What I love about the title is a still life, but it is not still at all. <laughs> you know? And in this, this listing of very unusual, supposedly still life uh, objects, and she had a friend... Um, Franco Mondini, who used to make steel lifes like that, and she said he would put things that were, you know, like putting rhinestones next to lard or horse hooves or pearls next to raw meat. 
you know, these disjunctive, strange um, objects next to each other. But that's what I, I, so I love about it. It's, it sets the space for anything to happen. That's right. I, I think that it's a frame in a way, but it's also can't contain itself. You know, it, it spills over in such a wonderful way from line to line and place to place. I, I think there's also this shift in, um, if not time, then in space throughout the poem. It isn't Venice or Buenos Aires, it's San Antonio. And I love that too. It, it sort of searches around and then locates us in a place that it feels like we've been all along, um, talking about all these kind of cultures coming together and a place of exploration in some sense, I think. Which is kind of how it is in, in the construction of a human memory. And poems, I think of poems as memory keepers in a way. They can be, not all poems, but they can be memory keepers. And there are so many um, contradictions. We're so full of contradictions and contradictory history. Right. It, it has a multiplicity to it, uh, even though it lives in one body and one people, but it has many iterations. Uh, and I think of that in the end with the skirt on my head and you, it, in a way, it's both the self the way that in a dream, everyone is you in some way. You can't see that, but the whole time you've been talking, I've just been nodding furiously because I think um, you're absolutely right to think of this poem as a kind of memory, but also as a poem about memory. It's sort of a poem about writing and, and also surviving, but it's also a poem to me about thriving and about the imagination. So it really is not just um, playing with those paradoxes, but holding them up to the light, maybe like a still life does, and, and having us examine them uh, and in some ways um, put them at a distance and in some ways bring them as close as the poem is at the end. I also think it has to do like when you're younger and you're at the bar and when you're young, you know, as, as an artist or as a human, you feel like anything is possible that, you know, death is some romantic idea. And, um, and, you know, unless you've come up in, in some of our communities where we see way too much death, you know, but in this certain kind of kind of a Western framework that the artist is invincible and, and has got room for all these kinds of experiences. But there is that kind of energy in it. It's like, well, we can be we're, we're creative and, and we're in this time and we're the speakers of this time. And you know, we, we can be anything. And so there is, I, I sense that energy going through it too, at the same time. I love how you put that. I mean, I think that beginning of, of the poem, it's not life at all, but certainly not natural. What's natural. It, it really is asking us to think about those constructions, not just of language, not just of art, but also I think of society, uh, of who gets to say what something is. There's something about that. It, it in a way, is reclaiming beauty in a way that I think uh, is really important. Um, it's saying that beauty is all these different things, and some of them might not obviously belong together, but the poet, the artist, the human eye, as you were talking about, really is able to put it all together. Thank you so much for for picking it and, and talking about it a little bit with us. Well, I enjoyed that. Thank you. Uh, so now in the July 9th and 16th, 2018 issue of the magazine, the New Yorker published your poem running, which we'll hear you read in a moment. Is there anything you'd like to say about the poem first? That one, well, it surprised me. You know, you get to a point in your life and you think you've dealt with something or you've, you've, uh, you're finished with certain moments and then there they come again. And, 
but you experience it in a different way. You come at it from a different angle. Well, let's hear it. Here's Joy Harjo reading her poem, Running. Running. It's closing time. Violence is my boyfriend with a cross to bear. Hoisted on by the church, he wears it everywhere. There are no female deities in the Trinity. I don't know how I'm going to get out of here, said the flying fish to the tree. Last call, we've had it with history. We who look for vision here, in the Indian and poetry bar, somewhere to the left of hell. Now I have to find my way when there's a river to cross and no boat to get me there, when there appears to be no home at all. My father gone, chased by the stepfather's gun. Get out of here. I've found my father at the bar, his ghost at least. Some piece of him in that sorry place, the boyfriend's convincing to a crowd. Right now he's the spell of attraction, what tales he tells in the fog of thin hope. I wander this sad world we've made with the enemy's words. The lights quiver like they do when the power's dwindling to a dangling stream. It's time to go home. We are herded like stoned cattle, like children for the bombing drill. Out the door, into the dark street of this old Indian town where there are no Indians anymore. I was afraid of the dark because then I could see everything, the truth with its eyes staring back at me, the mouth of the dark with its shiny moon teeth, no words, just a hiss and a snap. I could hear my heart hurting with my in-the-dark ears. I thought I could take it. Where was the party? It's been a century since we left home with the American soldiers at our backs. The party had long started up in the parking lot. He flew through the dark, broke my stride with a punch. I went down, then came up. I thought I could take being a girl with her heart in her arms. I carried it for justice, for the rights of all Indians. We all had that cross to bear. The old ones followed me, the quiet girl with the long dark hair, the daughter of a warrior who wouldn't give up. I wasn't ready yet to fling free the cross. I ran and I ran through the 2 a.m. streets. It was my way of breaking free. I was anything but history. I was the wind. That was Running by Joy Harjo. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. I think that every time I read this poem, it changes for me so much. And this time I really heard the rhyme in the poem, uh, 
it starts with it, you know, cross to bear everywhere, get out of here, and then the tree and history. But I was really struck by this shifting tones. And, and sometimes it's, you know, between line uh, to line, but also within the line and word to word, I thought I could take it. Where was the party? Um, I love those line breaks too, um, which I think you can hear as our readers can. Arms, I carried it for justice, for the rights of all Indians. We all had that cross to bear. There's this real play uh, throughout the poem, and I, I really like how the poem itself has a kind of running across the line. Um, was that form new for you, or you were saying, in a way, the perspective was new? Uh, obviously, it can be both. But I was wondering what came first for you when you were sitting down to write this. That's an interesting question. I was wondering about that. I think I always wanted to put there are no female deities in the Trinity somewhere, you know, that it was somewhere in the back there. But there was a sense of discovery. You know, as I was reading it, I started thinking I've been working on a new album of music and I'm a horn player. And what it reminds me of is uh, it sounds to me like a saxophone solo. I do a lot with rhythm. I'm a rhythm person. I've been learning bass, too. So the form really has to do with phrasing by rhythm. And, and what helps with that is those off rhymes, which are kind of percussive. They can be percussive in a way, or they have, um, they have a way of sl sliding from one sound to the next or one moment to the next. And it's very tonal. That's what I like about this poem. I was thinking about what I'm, what poetry I'll write next, and this kind of gives me an, an end to it. Yes, more please. We, <laughs> we need more poems that sing in this way. I mean, I, I think it's really beautiful. And I, I love that it, it's surreal in the way that I think uh, also makes use of humor. We were talking a little bit about that. Uh, with the other poem, but as you say, we've had it with history. We who look for a vision here in the Indian and poetry bar somewhere to the left of hell. And I think of Zora Neale Hurston, or I think of the blues, and I think of the music uh, you're both playing, but also sort of referring to. And uh, you mentioned the cross, you mentioned the female deities, but then there's also these, uh, a river to cross and no boat to get me there. Uh, there's mysteries in the poem that the poem also speaks to and summons. What do you think about that, the spirituality of the poem? I mean, that's one thing I love about poetry is because the spirituality is the, I don't want to say the gesso or the, the predominant background color. It's not even that, but th that's always there, I feel like, in whatever poem I write. It's that, in a way, it's a back and forth or a interaction with um, what you might call the spiritual realm. I mean, you could say this is all spiritual realm and just some of it is denser than others, but it's always that back and forth with a sense of, of awe. I feel like I'm always in the tangle of it when I write, that it's, I, I, I go towards it, but I have to go towards it through the, the ruin, sort of, I go towards it through the ruin of history or here, you know, in a bar where we're all looking for vision. I remember someone saying that, and I wish I could remember who that was. Um, somebody a lot wiser than me who said, well, because, you know, that 
people who are strung out or addicted, you know, it's people looking for a vision. They haven't found it yet, a vision that will pull it all together, that will make this world make sense to them. And I know right now we're all, you know, trying to make sense of, you know, the why, the why of the, the ugliness that we see or the why of the violence and racism and all the ills of society brought on by history. Well, history is people, you know, and people is us. You know, and how do we move through with grace? And with a poem, at least maybe I can move through violence with grace, but I don't know. I remember the uh, writer, the poet, and the, the novelist, um, Meredith Lesseur, who is a major social activist, a wonderful writer and supporter of young writers. I met her when I was really young, and she called me up at one point, about five years before she died, and says, I'm dying, and she was thrilled with the process. I, I always remember that. It's a process, you know, she was thrilled and she but she called up one day, she was dismayed. She said, as you know, an artist, I made things beautiful and I should never have written them as beautiful. And that stayed with me. That's powerful. I mean, I think you, you're talking about moving through violence and violence is here in the first line, um, quite literally, but it's sort of throughout. Uh, and uh, there's also that tension you hinted at just now between the I and the poem and the we, and the we um, is sort of all of us, but it also feels like the people in this bar, the people in the party, the people in the nation that I think you're referring to and also riffing off of. It's beautiful in that way. Yeah. And, and it's like the old ones, they don't just follow me. They follow everyone. We all have our ancestors that follow us and those who love us and, and, saying here's here's wisdom here here's a plan maybe that's that spirituality you were asking about earlier a plan unfolding that is the dream that we carry of a society or of a place in which we are conscious of taking care of the trees and the plant this this garden we're in and the garden takes care of us it's that kind of place and a place where we all you know, we all have a voice and we all sit at the table and even as we are as different as we can be we can be who we are. I love that. Uh, and I think it comes across at the end of the poem, I was the wind. I was anything but history. I was the wind. I mean, I'm, I'm still in awe of it. The line where you say, I was afraid of the dark because then I could see everything. Uh, and that everything, I think that sight is so hard won in the poem. And it speaks to this later relinquishing of history, but also being sort of acknowledgement of it. Um, there's something about that, the running uh, in the dark, after all, in the 2 a.m. streets, that touches on both, both the acknowledgement, the seeing everything, and the relinquishing of it, and, and being free at the end. And even being in danger. I mean, I think about back then and, and running and literally running through the street to get home and thinking about how many women didn't make it home. Well, I want to ask you about that in the beginning. You say violence is my boyfriend with a cross to bear. Uh, and then there's the stepfather's gun. You know, there's, there's this lurking violence, which is tied to maleness in the poem. And how do you think about that? Well... I'm not sure how I, it's just, it's there. You know, there is a violence in the world. You know, there's polarity and it's so out of balance right now. It's so, you know, you need, you need the male principle, you need the female principle and it needs to be in balance. 
I remember sitting in church as a little kid, as a kid, as I took myself there for a while and then I left it, but was thinking, where are women in the, in the power circle? You know, there's no true power unless, in any circle, there's no true power unless all the voices are there. That's where, where consensus, which they, you know, is kind of a native way of ruling or, you know, or so on. I mean, that's being very, very general, but where consensus comes into play, where, you know, you ask uh, everyone, even the kid, little kids, even the kids can have a voice, even a river can have a voice. Well said. I wanted to talk just briefly about the anthology you've done. Um, so you've edited this anthology of Native Nations poetry. It's called When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through. And I myself have recently completed an anthology of African-American poetry. It's 250 years of struggle and song. Um, and I know how daunting such a task can be. I wondered what your biggest challenge was in editing the book. And what was your favorite discovery? Or was there one? Okay, first of all, I, it wasn't just me editing. There was a team. And uh, the Leanne Howe, um, Choctaw poet, novelist, and uh, thinker, and scholar, and, and Jennifer Elise Forrester, we were the executive, executive associate, and associate editors. But we had a, a, a large team of editors of, of Native poets of all native poets and I came of uh, of a time when I would you know when I started writing poetry as a young native we I'd wind up I remember going to an MLA conference and um, the African-American literature people they had African-American scholars all the other ethnic groups and then when you came to natives they were all non-native scholars talking about us telling us you know what we were doing and who we were so I thought it was really important that the that the editing team was all native poets as the as the experts, and then we also I was teaching at that point at University of Tennessee Knoxville. So the students I I had a great team of graduate students who also assisted, but I think one of the hardest things is we're over like 570 something tribal nations, and at first the contract said that we had 300 pages to include poetry that was supposed to be you know a comprehensive historical. A book of poetry from from the beginning, and we were 300 pages, and that was one of the hardest things. You know, we had to leave out a lot because there's so many poets and nations, and we decided to divide it into geographical areas. The discovery, I came to realize that, or we came to realize that, you know, we say this, but you can see it in the poetry that geography really makes a difference too, and you know, in the experience or, or the, you know, metaphorical elements, etc., within a poem, within poetry. It's, it's a living art. It's always been a living art in our different languages. One of my favorites, and they're all my favorites, but is uh, Sherwin Bitsui's poem from uh, Flood Song, which is a uh, Navajo word for water, is tro. And it's, uh, it's like water dripping down the page, tro, 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 tro. Twelve. Anyway, that's that's one of the that's one of the poems in uh, native language. I love the organization of it. I think it really reorients us in an important way, and I think that there was something about that that just really broke down a lot of barriers and had us think about uh, place, but also 
um, the past and each section starts, uh, it's very chronologically organized, which is to say it felt very um, continuous and, and thinking about a tradition that connects and uh, I thought it was really beautifully done. So thank you so much for it. I love also what you say about English and you mentioned a little bit about language, um, but let me see if I can read just a moment of what you wrote in your introduction. You say that um, each tribal entity and language group is different. English then has become a very useful trade language. We use it to speak across tribal nations to people all over the world. Many of the poets here find a way to carry out established tribal form and content in English. And you talk about your poem, She Had Some Horses, and how it echoes stomp dances or Navajo horse songs and the ways that even in English you can capture uh, or, or represent or echo native forms. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yes, when I did an anthology before, a Norton anthology of contemporary Native, North American Native women's writing, and I edited that with uh, the Spokane writer Gloria Bird. And I remember we talked about English, we called it reinventing the enemy's language, you know, about how you take something that a tool that was meant to destroy you. And Audre Lorde, of course, has talked about that. Uh, you make something useful out of it, or you make uh, destructive materials useful. And, and, I like thinking about it as a as a trade language, and it's a way that the the positive part of it is then we there's a way to speak with each other. Well, the last question I have is just about your role as poet laureate, uh, which has been really a remarkable run. Tell us about sort of your time as poet laureate. Well, it's an amazing honor for one thing, and I think what has stood out, especially in the beginning, was it was an honor for indigenous people. I feel like it's an honor for them that I'm caring for this tradition of, of the love of oratory and in, in all of our languages and in English and some, for some in Spanish and some in French. Uh, and um, it speaks to that innate love of poetry that we have. And it's also, I, I think every position is a service position. Even if you're king or president, you're there to serve the people. And so it, it's been really wonderful and, and sometimes stressful <laughs> to uh, be in a position, but what an incredible way to be able to serve poetry. You know, it's a tool, it's an art, and it's more than that. You know, I think of it as soul talk. It's a way to, to speak beyond words, to be able to share it and represent poetry for a country that's really made up of many nations and nationalities and all kinds of peoples and all kinds of poetries. So it's been quite an experience. I'm not done with it yet, but it's, uh, I have a project which will, it, it's going to also be another Norton anthology that will be out in May called Living Nations, Living Words, which uh, are the poems that are in the uh, digital story map that we're making that will be available online. And uh, the book will be one of the parts of that project. Well, we thank you so much for your work and for this recent anthology and for that upcoming anthology. I look forward to all of it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Running by Joy Harjo, as well as Sandra Cisneros' Still Life with Potatoes, Pearls, Raw Meat, Rhinestones, Lard, and Horses can be found on newyorker.com. Sandra Cisneros most recently published the chapbook Puro Amor. Joy Harjo's latest collection is an American Sunrise. 
You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs>